and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from Stevenson Harwood's employment team. You can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at shlegal.com. My name's Anne Preetham and I'm an employment partner in the Stevenson Harwood Employment Group. With me today is Michelle Obertin, an associate in our team. In this month's podcast, we're discussing sexual harassment. We're going to take a brief look at what sexual harassment is under law, some of the lessons learned from key cases, and finally, practical points to consider when you're dealing with sexual harassment claims. Allegations of sexual harassment not only cause significant reputational damage for employers, but also expose them to potentially expensive litigation and the risk of unlimited damages in a successful claim. So, Michelle, to begin, how would you define sexual harassment? Well, the legal definition under Section 26 of the Equality Act 2010 is A person A harasses another person B if A engages in unwanted conduct related to a relevant protected characteristic and the conduct has the purpose or effect of violating B's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for B. The Equality Act 2010 essentially sets out three types of harassment. Harassment related to a relevant protected characteristic, sexual harassment and less favourable treatment of a worker because they submit to or reject sexual harassment or harassment related to sex or gender reassignment. Sexual harassment is harassment of a sexual nature. Confusingly, the term sexual harassment could also be used to describe harassment on the basis of sex as a person's gender is also a protected characteristic. The other protected characteristics are age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, race, religion or belief, sexual orientation and pregnancy and maternity. So looking at that definition a bit closer, what some employees would think of as banter or a joke could amount to sexual harassment. Yes, that's right, especially if the effect of the joke intimidates or offends an individual, for example. Even a one-off incident could constitute an act of harassment, or in contrast, the fact that an employee has put up with the behaviour over a long period of time does not mean the conduct is not harassment. Ultimately, employers are vicariously liable for any acts of harassment committed by its employees which occur in the course of employment. In addition, employers are prohibited from harassing a wide category of people other than employees, such as agency workers, job applicants and former employees. Since the allegations against Mr Harvey Weinstein first came to light and the Me Too movement began in 2017, awareness of what could be sexual harassment, i.e. harassment of a sexual nature, has increased and more employees are coming forward with complaints than ever before. Employers should bear in mind that it's not necessary for an employee to make a formal objection to the unwanted conduct. And the conduct itself could cover a very broad range of behaviour, from emails or written exchanges to verbal or non-verbal exchanges. Examples from some of the cases include images, graffiti, physical gestures, facial expressions, mimicry and pranks. Guidance from the Equality and Human Rights Commission also gives examples such as propositioning and making sexual advances, unwelcome touching, hugging, massaging or kissing, suggestive looks, staring or leering, sending sexually explicit emails and text messages and of course criminal activity such as sexual assault or stalking. Recent cases have also given examples of conduct which the tribunal found amounted to sexual harassment. The first case we're going to consider is one brought by Miss Natalie Abelgard against IFM Investors, a fund management firm in the city. This case actually settled before the end of the hearing, so there's no formal judgment, but the claimant alleged that an executive director made sexually explicit comments to her while the pair were out at a nightclub celebrating the end of a business deal. The director was also said to have stood inappropriately and intimidatingly close to her. A month later, the claimant was dismissed from her role and had to seek medical treatment for stress and anxiety. The case is really interesting because it shows that the conduct doesn't have to occur in the workplace or during working hours. 
The claimant in the end settled the case for £270,000, which is likely to have included compensation for future loss of earnings, plus an amount for injury to feelings. Employers should also be aware that if the victim's health suffers, as this lady's did, as a result of the harassment, the tribunal is very likely to take this into account and will award the employee a much higher sum for injury to feelings. Victims may also bring a disability discrimination claim against employers if there are mental health issues flowing from the harassment. This case is also interesting because the claimant was not required to sign a non-disclosure agreement, commonly known as an NDA. It's well known that employers often use robust non-disclosure clauses in their settlement agreements in order to protect the company's or its employees' reputations. Complainants often sign up to these terms in return for an enhanced settlement sum. Whilst the individual is prevented from disclosing the facts of their case to the general public, there are often carve-outs for disclosures to legal advisers, the police or regulators. Indeed, in the IMF case, the claimant went so far as to report the solicitor acting for the employer to the solicitor's regulatory authority for being aggressive and intimidating on the run-up to the hearing. It is alleged that the solicitor said that the claimant would be toast if she gave evidence and that she would never work in the city again. While the solicitor has not been charged or found to be in breach of professional standards, this case is evidence that the regulators are becoming more and more interested in sexual harassment claims. That's right, Michelle. For example, last September, the Financial Conduct Authority wrote an open letter to the Women and Equalities Committee about sexual harassment in the workplace, which said that individuals who fall under the senior managers and certification regime, or those who are applying to become an approved person under the regime, should bear in mind that allegations of sexual harassment may be taken into account when assessing fitness and propriety. If an individual has been found to have sexually harassed a colleague by the tribunal, then they may well lose their approved person status. Individuals who fall under the senior managers and certification regime or those who are applying to become an approved person under the regime should bear in mind that allegations of sexual harassment may be taken into account when assessing their fitness and propriety. Going back to the subject of non-disclosure agreements, on 11 June 2019, the Women and Equalities Committee published a report on the use of NDAs in discrimination cases. The committee made several recommendations to the government, including clearly defining the scope of the NDA and making sure employees are properly advised on the terms of the NDA. The committee's central concern is the imbalance of power between an individual complainant and a large employer with the resources to aggressively fight the allegation. With this in mind, the committee has also recommended that the remedies available to the employment tribunal and the costs regime are changed so that punitive damages can be awarded and employers should pay the employee's costs. In our opinion, it would be strange if sexual harassment cases have a different cost regime to the other types of cases. It remains to be seen whether the government will take up these recommendations and make legislative changes. Another case of interest is Unite the Union and Naylard in the Court of Appeal. And in that case, the Trade Union appeals against the decision of the Employment Appeal Tribunal that it was liable for the conduct of two locally elected officials. The respondent employee cross-appealed against a refusal to make findings that the union was liable for sex discrimination and sexual harassment in her case. The facts were that the respondent had been employed by the union as a regional officer at an airport. The locally elected officials were employees of Heathrow Airport rather than the union, but they did carry out full-time union duties. Two of the locally elected officials bullied and harassed the respondent over several years. The respondent complained to the union and presented a formal grievance, and she was later transferred to a different site. The union carried out an investigation, but the perpetrators were not dealt with firmly or decisively. The respondent resigned and successfully claimed constructive dismissal. Fast-forwarding to the Court of Appeal stage, the main issue was whether the union could be liable for the lay officials' behaviour when they were not employed by the union. The Court of Appeal found that the officials were the agents of the union for the purposes of establishing liability under the Equality Act 2010. Section 109 of the Act says that anything done by an individual as agent for a principal 
with their authority is treated as having also been done by the principal. The court found that the officials had committed the acts in question in the course of their roles as union representatives and the union was therefore liable for their behaviour. Employers should bear in mind that they may be responsible for the behaviour of their agents as well as their employees. So, what are the practical obstacles that parties face in sexual harassment cases? Firstly, when an individual makes an allegation of sexual harassment during employment, their employer must thoroughly investigate the complaint. Employers should gather up as much contemporaneous evidence as possible and try to ensure that the victim does not have to interact with the alleged perpetrator insofar as possible. If the individual does bring a claim, they will need to spell out very clearly what behaviour they believe amounts to sexual harassment. Individuals should be able to articulate what was said and done, when and by whom. Otherwise, they risk their harassment claim being struck out in the preliminary stages of the litigation or even having a deposit order made against them. Meanwhile, employers should instruct solicitors for advice. The key difficulty employers face is assessing whether the alleged unwanted conduct is likely to amount to sexual harassment under law. Ultimately, this depends on the context and the facts of each case. Legal advisers will be able to compare what has happened against established case law or examples given in the industry guidance, as well as making recommendations for settlement, if appropriate. Employers should also interview witnesses to the unwanted conduct as soon as possible to ensure that they have an accurate record of what has happened. If the claimant brings a particularly complex or lengthy claim, the employment tribunal may have difficulty in listing the claim, so it may be several months before the claim is heard, during which time memories can fade. We are finding that the tribunals are becoming busier and busier, and sometimes cases have been postponed at the last minute due to a lack of employment judges. Employers should also consider settling claims where necessary as early as possible to avoid the burden of protracted litigation. Employees also have personal liability in respect of any harassment they commit and can be named as co-respondents to a claim. Depending on the facts, employers may instruct the solicitors to represent the accused employee at the same time. This has the benefit of saving time and costs as well as streamlining the defence. However, employers should be aware that they may avoid corporate liability if they can successfully argue that they have taken all reasonable steps to prevent the discrimination from occurring. Overall, sexual harassment claims and also NDAs continue to be a hot topic in employment law. Employers facing allegations of sexual harassment can sometimes face a real uphill struggle in managing these claims as they can be complex and touch on sensitive issues. Guidance from the Equality and Human Rights Committee suggests that while complaints of harassment could be dealt with either under an employer's existing grievance policy or anti-harassment policy, anyone dealing with complaints of sexual harassment should in most cases receive specialist training. This is an area of the law which may be up for reform over the coming years, so employers should also be careful to keep up to date with developments. To end our discussion, I'd like to thank Michelle and all of you for listening. Just as a reminder, you can listen again to any of our podcasts and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes or Stitcher or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 